0: A decent argument can be made that this chapter division is improperly placed. Bruce Walkie, for example, argues that there is a discernible unit of thought beginning at chapter 16, verse 31, that continues through to chapter 17, verse 6. Look at those two verses side by side. 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. 17.6 says, grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. The words crown and glory seem to form a set of outer brackets, if you will. That seems to suggest that the unit as a whole is talking about the sort of reward one experiences later in life if he or she walks on the path of wisdom. The rest of chapter 17 represents a collection of individual sayings about the nature and destiny of fools. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. This better than proverb roughly parallels the saying in 1632, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Walkie says here, as inward control over one's spirit has priority over external military might, so spiritual peace and quiet within a household have priority over its physical feasting. Verse 2 A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The basic idea here is that household leadership depends more upon character and prudence than upon birthright. In the long run, you can work your way into the center of things by dealing wisely. And conversely, you can work your way to the margins by playing the fool. Verse 3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. This reminds me of Job 23.10, where Job says, The Lord knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. As you get older, you begin to see more and more evidence of the Lord's providence in the twists and turns of your life. It's hard to see those things when you're in those things, but looking back upon them, it can become easier over time to trace God's hand. You begin to realize that all of life is a test. God is creating challenges, ordaining struggles, designing opportunities, all to identify and refine faith. You start to understand that conversion is less about the moment and more about the process. He is the potter and we are the clay. Thanks be to God. Verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. This verse is very insightful. It says that there's a connection between how you speak and what you like to listen to. Evil doers are drawn to wicked lips. People who lie enjoy listening to mischievous speakers. Of course, we know this from experience. The people who spread gossip are also typically very eager to hear it. You can tell a lot about a person by what conversations they're drawn to. And of course, the flip side of that is that you can tell a lot about yourself by what conversations you are drawn to as well. Verse five, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. A person who mocks the poor obviously does not fear the Lord who made all human beings in his image. Likewise, a person who is glad at calamity shows him or herself indifferent to the value of human life. In both cases, they show themselves deserving of punishment. Verse six, grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their fathers. As I mentioned, some see this verse as the outer bracket marking off a unit that began at chapter 16, verse 31. The unit generally has to do with wisdom in the later years and the rewards that accrue over time to the one who walks the path of wisdom for an extended period. Verse 6 presents a picture of a family beaming out joy and honor upon each member. We imagine a grandfather surrounded by his children and grandchildren. The grandfather is honored by them, and they in turn honor each other. The message would seem to be that a healthy, functional, multi-generational family is the ultimate earthly reward for a well and wisely lived life. Now, of course, hearing that could easily crush a person whose children are straying and who are not currently either bringing them honor or showing them honor. We have to remember that Proverbs shows us the way things ought to be and the way things generally are, but we remember that principles like this are resisted in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes reminds us that in a fallen world, not fully redeemed and restored, you can do everything right and still not receive the reward that you are due. There are parents out there who probably need to hear that. In a fallen world like this, you can raise your kids right, you can bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and even still, they can walk away. They can make bad choices. They can take wrong turns, and things can go horribly sideways. That can happen. That often does happen. But this proverb remains true. It is true in the sense that this is how things should go, And it is true in the sense that this is how things still often do go. It remains true that if you raise up a child in the way he should go, generally speaking, he will not depart from it. And even if he does, if there is enough gospel ballast in that soul, he will eventually come back to it. Your reward may just be delayed. So hang in there and keep praying. And then I think too, there's a sense in which this proverb remains true in an ultimate sense. Jesus had no biological descendants, he had no children and grandchildren, and yet through faith and through the miracle of the church, no one has more offspring than he. And that can be true for you as well. The Apostle Paul spoke of several young men as his sons in the faith, and many of them, most of them, went on to bring him glory, thanks be to God. In verse 7, we enter an extended discussion about the nature and destiny of fools, Fine speech is not becoming to a fool. Still less is false speech to a prince. Verse 7 shows us two things that are out of kilter. It is not fitting for a fool to make a fine speech, nor is it fitting for a noble person to make a false speech. In general, what comes out of the mouth should reflect the quality and character of the heart. Verse 8, a bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. This is a very interesting verse. It is describing the way the world works while temporarily withholding judgment. Now, we've seen that approach used before. Basically, the idea here is that a bribe is like a universal key. It opens every door. Wise people see that reality and account for it. Now, of course, the wise father knows that bribes are immoral. The law clearly said so in Exodus 23, 8. The wise father himself said so back in chapter 15, verse 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. So bribes are one of those shortcuts that do seem to produce instant results. But like all shortcuts, this one ends in death, either in the short term or the long term. Verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Tremper Longman III says marvelously here, Friendship thinks the best of others and overlooks offenses. Quote. Yes, what a wonderful world it would be if we had more people like this and less of what we typically see on social media. If you've ever taken a screenshot of someone's ill-considered comments and immediately posted that on your timeline in order to shame and embarrass them, then you are part of the problem. You are a person who separates friends, and you are no kind of friend yourself. If you are friends with such a person, be wise. It may be you they are attempting to embarrass tomorrow. Verse 10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A wise person values correction. The wise father has told us that before. Here's an interesting thought experiment. Have you ever responded to a rebuke before by reconsidering your beliefs or your behaviors on a particular matter? Most good people, most wise people can think back to at least two or three occasions when a friend or a boss or a parent pulled them aside and rebuked them on something that they needed to be rebuked on. I can remember a senior counselor at the Boys Gym Club of America pulling me aside when I was 14 or 15 years old and really laying into me in a loving and firm way. I can remember my first boss in ministry, Derek Tapper, telling me to grow up and to think less of myself and more of others. I could name two or three other occasions when people who knew me and loved me gave me a serious kick in the pants. On one occasion, it was an actual kick in the pants. And I took that seriously. Take a minute right now and think back on those occasions in your life. If you responded positively, then thank God for that. Pause this program and actually do that. Thank God for good friends who took a risk, for mentors who had the courage to say something true that you needed to hear. And then thank God as well for the gift of the Holy Spirit who provided the conviction inside your soul necessary for you to make proper use of that correction. Now, if you can't think of any such occasion, then fall on your knees and repent of your pride and foolishness. Because there's no way, the only other possible explanation for that is that you are a perfect individual. But that's probably not the answer. The answer is probably that you're a fool. You're a scoffer. You are a person running headlong into judgment. Verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Walkie offers an alternative translation here that, in my opinion, is a little bit clearer. He says, an evil person fosters only rebellion, but a cruel messenger is sent against him. Alan P. Ross, who understands the proverb basically the same way, says here, this expression could refer to a pitiless messenger the king would send, but it also could refer to storms, pestilence, or any misfortune that served as God's messenger of retribution, quote. God is opposed to the anarchist and the rabble rouser and has many agents of providence with which to thwart and chastise him. That's the basic idea. Verse 12, let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. The amount of damage a fool can do when his blood is up is difficult to overestimate. While this proverb is not specifically addressing forms of government, the principle does, to my mind, recommend forms of polity that include a separation of powers. Better a fool restrained by differently motivated fools than a fool at perfect liberty with unlimited power. Verse 13, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. This principle is repeated and expanded upon by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 17. He says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Playing tit for tat results in ceaseless warfare. At some point, nobility and honor will show itself in attempts to reconcile, or at least a determination to de-escalate. Paul knows that harmony is not always possible in a fallen world, so he goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 12 of Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think we could fairly consider that commentary on Proverbs seventeen thirteen, Verse 14, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Once you break the seal on a conflict, it is hard to predict or control the eventual flow. Better to address matters before the tension builds. Verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. This proverb appears to be directed at magistrates and judges. Deuteronomy 25.1 directs judges to acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. To do the opposite of that would be an abomination. It would be hateful to God. Verse 16, why should a fool have money in his hand to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Scholars debate some of the details here, but the idea seems to be that a student can't just buy wisdom. It's not just like a class that you enroll in. It's not a certificate that you get. If he doesn't truly desire wisdom, then his money will be wasted. I remember in the second or third year of my undergrad running into an old acquaintance from high school. He had been a grade ahead of me. I asked him how he was enjoying university and he told me he was finding it a bit of a struggle. He had run out of money because he had spent almost $10,000 on beer in his first year alone. Well, (laughs) no wonder he was having trouble. It's a wonder he was standing upright. He didn't come to university to increase in knowledge. He came to party. You could have all the money in the world. But if you don't value education, you're never going to learn. Now, I have no idea if he ever did graduate, but his story illustrates the principle. It takes more than money to accumulate knowledge and skill. It must be accompanied by right desire. Verse 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Many proverbs have to do with stability. And here we're being told that good relationships are critical to the matter of stability, particularly in times of adversity. People who maintain a strong network of friends and family are best positioned to survive and thrive in difficult circumstances. Verse 18, one who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. The wise father has spoken about this before. There was an extended treatment on this matter in Proverbs chapter 6 in one of the introductory poems. It is unwise to yoke yourself financially to another person. Rash benevolence is a great way to destroy your life. Don't do it. Verse 19 Whoever loves transgression loves strife, he who makes his door high seeks destruction. This is a difficult proverb to translate, so it might be helpful to hear it in at least one other translation. The NIV has it as, whoever loves a quarrel loves sin. Whoever builds a high gate invites destruction. That helps us a little bit with the first colon. It seems to be saying that a person who loves quarreling is a sinner. Okay, Quarreling isn't good. It is not a sign of your courage. It is a sign of your stupidity. Knock it off. As for the second half, that isn't all that clear in either translation. It's probably an idiom that we're just too culturally distant from to properly understand. 3,000 years from now, should the Lord tarry, I imagine that readers of our literature will struggle to understand what kick the bucket means or why we tell people to break a leg when we actually want them to do well. All right, well, so it is here. We're, We're just guessing. But Alan P. Ross's guess is better than most. He says probably it is figurative. The gate is the mouth, so to make it high is to say lofty things. He brags too much, quote. That sounds reasonable, and it fits with the other half of the proverb. People who like to quarrel and those who like to brag are equal and competing in their foolishness. They are running neck and neck towards destruction. Avoid them. Verse 20, a man of crooked heart does not discover good. And one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. If you have a busted compass, you'll never arrive at your intended destination. Likewise, if you have a crooked tongue, whether you mean to or not, you will talk your way into trouble. Now, a proverb like that is a call to repentance. Only the person who has been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ can escape the destiny that is here foretold. Verse twenty-one: He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. This is a constant theme in Proverbs. See Proverbs 10.1. Who you are and how you are influences those who love you most dearly. Verse twenty-two: A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Again, we see the connection here between inner heart and outer health. And we also discover the biblical origin of the common English proverb that says that laughter is the best medicine. How true. Verse 23, the wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. So here we see the judgment upon bribery that was deferred in verse 8. A bribe may work wonders in the short term, but its essential wickedness must be reckoned with. Verse 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. This verse is commending focus and the setting and pursuing of appropriate goals. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom. The fool, on the other hand, is endlessly distracted. This proverb, of course, is particularly relevant in our current age. We are living in what many call the age of distraction. Young people who spend five hours a day watching videos on TikTok are cultivating the habits of foolishness. Parents must do everything they can to interrupt that siren song. God help. Verse 24, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Even though we've heard that before, it does nicely support the messaging of verse 24. Verse 26 says, To impose a fine on a righteous man is not good, nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. The law is supposed to restrain wickedness and reward righteousness. So when it does the opposite, we've obviously got a problem. That's the basic idea here. Verse 27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. There is wisdom in moderating your words and your emotional expression. As Tremper Longman III puts it, in this way they regulate how other people will perceive them, closed quote. Verse 28 expands upon this idea, saying, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. The best chance that foolish people have of appearing wise is not talking at all. After all, as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Matthew 12:34. Who you are will eventually come out of your mouth. So manage your mouth, or even better, transform your heart. Now, of course, to do that, you'll have to do business with the great physician. He knows how to heal the heart, and he knows how to purify and empower your speech. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for In of the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the End of the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach.